there are two characters who never met. They were of different classes. They, their approaches to life were quite different. Churchill was a public man, Orwell was a writer. Um, and the tie that, that Ricks attempted to bind them with was they both were anti-fascist um, in their own way. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast, where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before we get to today's guest, let me mention what I've been reading. I recently completed the first four volumes of Robert Caro's epic work titled The Years of Lyndon Johnson, which are as much about the eras they cover as they are about Johnson. Then, while visiting Jake in Williamsburg, I went to McNally Jackson and picked up Working, Caro's wonderful new book containing his observations about researching, interviewing, and writing. I also recently completed The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by David Wallace Wells, a remarkable book about the existential climate change challenges that we may be facing. Heat waves, floods and intolerable droughts, crop failures, climate refugees, climate caste systems, and unwitting environmental apartheid. And also about how widespread alarm will shape our ethical impulses toward one another and the politics that emerge from those impulses. Yikes. Please do read and think about this one. As David writes, we won't get to a climate change solution through the dietary choices of individuals, but through policy changes. David is the son-in-law of our dear friends Harry and Roseanne Needleman, and David displayed his very guarded optimism for the future, which he explains in his book, by bringing into the world with his wife, Risa, a beautiful granddaughter for Harry and Roseanne. On a far less terrifying note, at the very beginning of fishing season in April, I again read A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean, the wonderful and beloved, at least by me, mixed novel and memoir that includes innumerable outstanding observations, including this one. Quote, To my father, the highest commitment was to do whatever his sons wanted him to do, especially if it meant to go fishing, close quote. True for me as a dad, and I have always also extended that commitment to my daughter, and will now to Jake as well. Next, I read Preet Bahara's new book, Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law, in which he notes, quote, in the end, the law doesn't do justice, people do, close quote. I love the Stay Tuned with Preet podcast and, and enjoyed Preet's book as well. And finally, I continue to read and enjoy Churchill, Walking with Destiny by Andrew Roberts, sent to me by my good friend David Levine after he read a brilliant New York Times column by Brett Stevens in which Stevens notes the many criticisms of Churchill but says, quote, we reconcile ourselves to the decadence of the present only if we choose to remain ignorant of the achievements of the past, close quote. Lots more to go in this epic biography. Now to today's guest. My friend Josh Raft, who is an accomplished 
reader and an emerging writer, publishes a blog which is called Unbarred and which is about food, wine, travel, books, and, as he says, other stuff as well. Today's focus is on several sets of books which Josh, Josh refers to as either twinned or paired books. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're here with me. And I'm very pleased that today, that we're together, and especially that we get to record in the new Anchor Podcast Studio in Spotify's offices in New York. It turns out that we are also beneficiaries of Spotify's acquisition of Anchor. On April 18, Josh added a blog post to his ongoing work that he calls Six Feet of Books. I love the the name. The April 18 post discusses books that come in pairs, mysteries and crime thrillers, novels whose protagonists are actual historical figures, works of nonfiction taking place with reference to World War II and related events, and finally, a biography of a chef and the story of the evolution of the American chef. Josh, you recently realized that your reading was coming in twins or pairs. Are you intentionally or maybe subconsciously finding books with common themes, subject matters, or other characteristics? How does this happen, and and do you enjoy the twinning? Well, um, that's a good question, Howard, because I don't precisely know why it happens. And in fact, on my post that you mentioned, I asked my readers if they experience the same thing. I know occasionally I will read in pairs or groups, uh, usually by subject though. So if you become interested in a particular subject or particular author or a kind of writing. So years ago when I was first reading Marquez and became interested in South American literature. I would read those in series, but now my reading is so diverse that it was actually a surprise to me when I looked back at what I had read over the course of several months and realized that the books had common themes, approaches to writing, subjects or time periods. And um, in speaking about this with uh, my daughter, Simone, she mentioned that she often uh, reads in pairs, usually a fiction and a nonfiction that that are covering the same area. But I did not, the only one out of the books that you, that I mentioned in the post, that is not surprising that I read in pairs are the two books about food because I read a lot about food. <laughs> so that's not surprising at all. So talk about the the books that you paired. There there are several sets of books, and sure, maybe you can maybe we'll get a sense for how they are paired. Some are obvious, the ones about World War II, right. and 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 food. Well, the so I'll start with the more, more recent books because after after I had written most of the post. Uh, I realized that the last two novels I read had a common thread as well that made them uh, fall very nicely into the paired category. And uh, they were two books um, that are fairly recent. Um, One was uh, given to me as a gift, so I certainly didn't pair it on purpose, but it was uh, a Jasmine 
uh, Darsnick's book, Song of a Captive Bird, which is um, tells the real and imagined story of the Iranian poet Farouk and I'm sure I mangled that pronunciation. Oh, it probably came close. And so she uses the life of a real person, a person who lived uh, from the 30s to the 60s. She died quite young. Um, who was a groundbreaking uh, poet and filmmaker in Iran uh, as the basis for her story and then imagines her thoughts and feelings and life around the, the basic facts that are known um, uh, and have been written about in bio biographies and other things. The second book is something even more recent, uh, Whitney Schar's book, The Age of Light, where the main character is the American photographer, Lee Miller, and a real character uh, who uh, lived in Paris, uh, shot uh, photography all over, was one of the uh, first people to capture pictures of the uh, liberated camps um, uh, in Europe post-World War II. Before that, she had been a model. Uh, she was an artist. And the book, the primary uh, focus of the book is her relationship with the American expatriate photographer Man Ray um, in Paris uh, in the pre-World War II period. And, and the relationship, uh, these are two uh, novels which center around the lives of historical, actual historical figures. Yes, and, and fairly recent. They're not uh, stories built around a king or a queen or a prince or anybody else who might have lived hundreds of years ago. This was 20th century lives. And, you know, at least in my reading, I'm more used to seeing actual figures f float through books or being used by the author to, uh, as ancillary characters, move the the plot forward, serve other purposes, so the main protagonist is often fictional, even though they may, she, you know, he or she may end up in Gertrude Stein's apartment right, in Paris right. with Ernest Hemingway and all yeah, these yeah. other characters. The, the main character is often fictional. This is a whole different challenge um, because you're working within a very established structure, somebody's actual life. And, and is, then, there, is there a name for this? You know, I don't know the answer so, to that. So for those who are listening, please send a note with what you think the name should, this should right. be. There should, right. we, should na we should name this. Yes. Um, and, you know, s people have different views on how, uh, how to approach work like this. Like, can you really put yourself in the mind of somebody who uh, you never met? maybe read about a little bit in your map, but I don't see why not. It's a work of imagination. It's just based around a real set of facts. So in a discussion about Educated on a podcast a little while ago, uh, Dylan Marin, uh, who was my guest, asked himself out loud whether uh, it was ethical for uh, Tara Westover to write about her family. And this was not a novel. This was, uh, this was a true fact or as she portrayed it, and he said, of course she did. Uh, this was her family, and, and she had every right to do that. Is there an ethical issue at all uh, about writing about someone in a fictional way? 
Um, that's a difficult question, Howard. In the in the pro writing program that I have been, I'm about to complete, we spent a lot of time, it's a nonfiction program, but we spent a lot of time talking about that. And, uh, you know, in, in other contexts, people certainly have taken issue. There are films that are made with, with real characters and estates of deceased characters uh, are up in arms <laughs> yeah. all the time about the way, a way the, the people are portrayed. Um, so, I, you know, of course you have to be sensitive to it um, and you have to be careful, it seems to me, not to uh, appropriate um, details that don't belong to you. Yeah. But I think you can imagine these are two public but figures. They're, they're very public. Yeah. Their lives are sort of open books. They've yeah. been written about a lot. Um, and it seems to me, as long as you disclaim um, that this is purely a work of yeah. fiction, um, you probably have the leeway to yeah. write about it. So that's, those, those are great twins. I, yeah. I, I, like, I like that a lot. And then another, another okay. group of your books? Well, two... Two other books that are to switch to nonfiction that have a different commonality, and that is they both use a technique uh, that's, for want of a better word, that is braiding. And they take the lives of uh, their protagonists and they weave them together in ways uh, that are not perhaps as obvious uh, as uh, they might think, so as one might think. So, for example, the second one, uh, which I was going to talk about, uh, is called Churchill and Orwell, so on your Churchill question. And it's by Tom Ricks, who's a very well-established mm -hmm. writer on self-defense, I mean, on uh, national defense and yeah. on similar issues. Um, he has quite a fascination with both the characters. There are two characters who never met. They were of different classes. They, their approaches to life were quite different. Churchill was a public man, Orwell was a writer. Um, and the tie that, that Ricks attempted to bind them with was they both were anti-fascist um, in their own way in World War II, you know, in the lead up to World War II and, and, and during. And in Churchill's case, it was really in the face of what many of his class were would otherwise have thought yeah. um, being right wing uh, at, at best. Uh, in Orwell's case, he was involved, he was in Spain, he had written he fought for years. Spain. Um, homage to Catalonia is still one of the great, great books. Um, and, and as I said, they never met. Uh, Churchill had read Orwell, but that's as close as it came. So the book attempted to weave those two stories together because otherwise there was no reason to cover both those characters in a single book. I love the way you um, refer to, to the braiding. It's very right. descriptive. And it's interesting because Churchill was also a writer. Right. He made his living uh, writing. Yes, he did. And so there's that relationship. And Churchill moved from the right to the left. And Orwell, to some extent, moved from the left to the right. They didn't quite meet in the center, but they came pretty close. Right. 
And, well, the other interesting thing is, of course, Orwell's career, although he died, I think, before Churchill did, uh, career has continued yes. to take off. Well, uh, you know, especially in more went, recent times. Um, and, uh, and Churchill, public career at least, sort of petered out after World War II. Um, but that's, that's one example. Another, the other example I give, which I happen to be reading one, uh, almost at the same time, uh, one after another, was called, uh, is called East-West Street. It's in a really fabulous book by a writer and lawyer, who you'll appreciate that, Philippe Sands, who's a, uh, an international lawyer in London. And it's about, he, in that book, he weaves together three characters, um, all of whom were from a city uh, which uh, go, went by various names over the years, as s s many cities in Eastern Europe did, depending on who was in charge. So he c calls it, or I call it in, in, the, uh, uh, in the piece I wrote, Lviv, but it also, was also known as Lemberg and a whole bunch of other names. Um, it's in Poland, and the three characters were two uh, lawyers, um, and that's the crux of the story. So one lawyer was um, Hirsch Lauterpacht, who um, developed a theory for um, international law uh, that became one of the bases for the Nuremberg trials and is still used in, in, uh, in international law today. Uh, he came up with a theory for crimes against humanity. The other lawyer from the same city, although they had never met either, uh, was Raphael Lemkin, and he came up with a different theory, the theory of genocide, um, also for uh, use, which ultimately were, was used in the Nuremberg trials. So that was two natural people yep. to come together. Not only were they, were they from the same place, they were both lawyers, they were both working on these competing legal theories for international um, uh, law, war crimes, basically. And the third character was the Philippe Sands's grandfather, who also came from the same city, but wasn't a lawyer, had nothing to do with uh, Nuremberg and, and Nuremberg trials or law or anything else. Um, and so through the book, he weaves the three lives together, you know, not, not making a connection where there was none, but, but using um, the bra braiding. And he also talks a lot about how he uncovered the life of his grandfather through oh. research and and all of this. So um, it's it's a very interesting approach. I, I think in both cases, the case of both books, I was left um, as wonderful as the writing was by both of them. I was left scratching my head a little bit about why, what, what, what was the was the common thread enough yeah, yeah. to make it a single book and uh, I can't answer that question everybody would answer that question differently I, did, did the lawyer, two lawyers know each other did either know no. the grandfathers nobody knew anybody <laughs> um, the two lawyers had never met although they obviously knew about each other because they had these competing 
uh, theories that they were each trying to sell as a basis to not sell for money, but yeah, I mean, yeah. sell to the powers Prom that be yeah. um, as a basis for prosecuting um, the Nazis post-World War II. And uh, one was very oriented around the extermination of groups, and another was much more individually oriented. And, um, and the book goes into quite a bit of detail about how the, uh, the people who were actually involved in the trials used each theory and whether the, both of them ended up consulting, but one had a better relationship than the other with the powers that be. So as I mentioned, uh, the Robert Carroll book uh, the Times of Lyndon Johnson are called the Times of Lyndon Johnson and Carroll makes the point, and it comes out in the books certainly, but he makes the point uh, in his talk and his, and his writings that he did not want to do a biography. Mm -hmm. And same thing with the power broker about Robert Moses. In those cases, uh, Robert Moses and, and Johnson, he wanted to talk about political power and he used Moses and Johnson as a vehicle to talk about political power. In the case of Johnson, so much of the book, as I said, is about the times. and it, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of pages about the times. And that's how he tells the story. David Remnick uh, has made this point, and it comes out in New Yorker articles, that um, he tells the story, he told the story in one of my favorite books um, about uh, Cassius Clay becoming Muhammad Ali, King of the World by Remnick, where he, it, the book purportedly is about Cassius Clay, Cassius Clay but it's really about the times. Uh, race relations and anti-Vietnam War and so on and so forth. And it may be these two authors were telling the books, telling a story of the times. Right. And, and, and I like that. It, it, feels, it feels rich to tell the, tell the story of the times in which they lived through their lives. Yes, I, I, I don't disagree with that, although I think these, in the case of both Churchill and Orwell, the times were so large. Yeah, I mean, well, large. In, in both cases, yeah. in all of the yeah, cases, because sure. they all were sort of oriented around World War II. Um, I'm not sure that, other than Churchill, the life of any one of these people would have been particularly illustrative yeah. of of the broader times. But that it, you know, I think the kind of book that, on a much lighter note, the food books yeah. that I also mention, um, which are one of them at least, is w what I would refer to as a collective biography. I think that does that yeah. um, very effectively because it's not focused on the struggles or life of only one person. It's, it's weaving uh, the lives of different people to illustrate a cultural phenomenon. Um, that, and, that must be chefs, drugs, and rock and roll. That is chefs, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> and um, uh, it's an interesting book, uh, and I have to give a plug here for the great bookstore in which I bought it, um, Kitchen Arts and Letters, which is on the Upper East Side and been been there for thirty something years, uh, which has an amazing collection not only of cookbooks but books about food, about wine, about the culture of food, the science of food. And actually, um, there I found both of these books. Um, this uh, Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll was more widely available, and you could have easily seen it in 
in another bookstore. But the the second book, um, which is the biography of uh, the English, um, I hesitate to call her a cookbook author because she was so much more than that, um, uh, food person, um, Patience Gray, uh, called um, Fasting and Feasting uh, by Adam Fetterman, is, is a more traditional biography. And I'm not sure it goes to the times because she was such a unique person and uh, lived an incredibly unique life. Um, and we all live a unique life. That's kind of a silly thing to say. But the, um, she was really singular in the way that she lived and, um, and thought about things, including food. Um, the other book is, is more in the nature of what you would find. For example, the book which now slips my mind, that's uh, the, the biographies of Joni Mitchell and um, a couple of other, of the great women uh, singer-songwriters from, the, I think Carol King is covered in that book, there's three of them, and that really tells the story of a time through their lives. Yeah. Um, and, and he does too, starting in the food scene, really focused on the food scene primarily in Los Angeles. Uh, as sort of new American cuisine was starting to uh, develop wings. And at the same time, there were lots of other things happening, obviously, in American food. There were Chez Panisse in in, uh, San Francisco or in Berkeley. Uh, That was sort of a French-oriented restaurant. This was really the group of people trying to define a Southern California or American cuisine and the way he describes it in New York, it was cuisine had been captured by the French, you know. And uh, so it's it's an interesting book and a fun read, not um, not taxing, uh, um, but a, an interesting book. And the relationship between these two is is the food. Is the food, yeah. and the, and again, they were so different. The people who were who were doing food in L.A were so different from Patience Gray. It just... Interesting. I was perhaps maybe trying to braid a little <laughs> where braiding um, did not belong. But And, um, and then, then back to more serious topics, yeah. two, two more novels. Yeah, the two novels were really interesting. And, and again, I, I think purely by accident, I ended up reading one after another. Um, one is called um, Golden Hill, um, and the other is called His Bloody Project. Um, and they're both written in, at least in part, uh, in the dialogue of their times. So in the case of Golden Hill, it's set in pre-Revolutionary War New York, um, and a, the protagonist shows up from uh, the UK, uh, and nobody exactly knows why he's there. He's, he is the narrator, however, um, and uh, nobody knows why he's there, and it's finally revealed at the very end. Um, and it's—I won't give away the the, Good. the plot because it is a sort of mystery. Um, and then uh, his bloody project is a very intense book that is set in um, in Scotland, uh, Scot- a fairly remote Scottish farming community in the mid 19th century. Uh, and that's a it's a murder mystery 
And a lot of the book, not all of it, but a lot of the book is based on the written testimony of the protagonist. Um, and so it's written in a dialogue. In fact, it has a glossary so that you can figure out what they're talking about. Although I found, as is the case in many books um, that are written in different styles or from other eras or um, some written without punctuation, you know, whatever, if you get, if you read it, you get you get a sense of the pace and the meaning, and you really don't need the glossary. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. So, so that's the, the the commonality commonality they have as their their modern stories, but written in older yeah. dialect. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and you know, one of the f things I remember this is such a small thing, but in in pre-revolutionary New York, the the, uh, the protagonist comes, and you know, when he's given money, uh, he's he's trying to get some money change. Uh, he's got a bill of from a bank in uh, or a trading company in the UK, and he's trying to get money, and he's getting coins and bills and stuff from every co colony is different. So he's got a Rhode <laughs> Island nickel and a New Jersey dollar bill, <laughs> I but they wouldn't call that. Um, and you really get it's it's really wonderful about uh, giving you a feel for what it must have been like. And here, sitting in the Spotify offices, right around where right, this right. would have been exactly. happening. That, that's um, why we chose this spot. Know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, That's great. So that wonderful discussion, a description of those books and, and the pairing. What are you reading now? Well, um, I, I brought for you a book that I recently finished, um, and it's a really devastating <laughs> book. Oh, good. Um, but it really needs to be read. It's called Solitary by um, Albert Woodfox. Um, I brought you a copy. Thank you very much. Um, and it's uh, about uh, it's written with a writer, but Al Albert Woodfox is was recently released from prison after some forty years or four decades in solitary confinement, most of which was spent in a wow. Angola prison for most of which was spent in prison for a crime he clearly did not commit. And he was in prison for a crime he did commit as a young man in New Orleans and then um, uh, was ultimately accused and convicted, conviction was overturned numerous times, uh, of, um, of, a, of another crime committed while he was in prison. And he and two of his uh, companions became what known as the Angola Three, yes. um, and uh, this is his book uh, that tells the story. And what's probably the most amazing thing when you get to the end is first how he kept his um, humanity and his uh, sense of. Uh, Brightness. I don't, I don't know. If that's not not even a word. Um, and you know, at, at some point along the way in the '60s, he became a black, in prison. He became a Black Panther, and he that seemed to have saved him in the sense that it gave him a political framework for yeah. what was happening to him. 
that he was able to somehow live 40 years in this tiny little cell um, with his soul intact. And um, the other thing that's amazing is, and I, I closed the book and I said, okay, so clearly he paid for his initial crime, which paid for it a gazillion okay. times over. There are people that should be in jail, if what he, assuming what he says is true. There are people who should be in jail, and they're none of the people that are in jail. The the it's it's such a yeah. condemnation of the system, not only of the prison system, but of the judicial system, of the governor at the time. Um, it's it's really um, devastating to read. Um, well, so. Wow. Um, I hope you. <laughs> I hope you enjoy uh, it. Well, it's it, it's eye opening. Yeah, you know? it, sounds, um, yeah. it really is yeah. eye opening. Uh, the other couple of books I wanted to mention. Um, well, I'll always read a book by Alan First or Arturo Perez Reverte. Um, so I look forward to the, those come out because those are just wonderfully written and fun to read. Um, I recently read a book called *The Village: A History of Greenwich Village* by John Strasbaugh, uh, which is a story of bohemian life in mm -hmm. Greenwich Village starting um, in colonial times. And I am currently reading Ninth Street Women uh, by Mary Gabriel, which is the story of four, four or five of the uh, most important women artists who came out of the abstract and imp impressionist movement participants, main players in that. Um, and that's also very, very interesting collective biography and they did know each other yeah. um, and then interestingly I'm also reading uh, I, I say I'm reading I mean I get you know a certain little time a day and before I sort of fall asleep but the um, I'm rereading a book that I got when I was 10 years old um, and it was given to me as a prize when I was in school in Edinburgh and um, the Coral Island, which by Ballantyne, which is uh, a fascinating read, albeit with all sorts of problems, as you can imagine, for a book that's written in the mid 19th century uh, of three uh, boys who are stranded on a, a South Pacific island. Um, but having read with my son many. Ad boy adventure stories of today which have all sorts of magic or uh, uh, god gods or demigods or and or are totally dystopian um, this is so different um, refreshing it's it it is except the first half was really refreshing <laughs> and then and by the way this book was supposedly one of the books on which many subsequent boys adventure books were based um uh, including peter pan and uh treasure island uh, and lord of the flies which was sort of written with a, a completely different twist because it was written obviously where the boys are struggling for power and in this book that there's none of that they're a, they're a happy trio that's wonderful yeah you mentioned a, a bookstore. Uh, wh what are your favorite bookstores? Um, 
Well, I have to say, uh, for books on food, that that's yep. that's a place to go. Um, there's a book. There's I tend to enjoy smaller bookstores. Um, the Strand is obviously amazing, and you will see great great books there. The people there are incredibly knowledgeable, but I find it overwhelming. So I tend to go towards smaller bookstores where you can rely a little bit on the staff to make recommendations or things that you haven't read before. So there's a bookstore on um, 10th Avenue, just below 22nd Street, whose name now escapes me. A very small bookstore, they have a beautiful selection of books. The bookstore Josh was referring to was 192 Books at 10th and 21st Street. Josh also mentioned to me the Corner Bookstore at Madison and 93rd, and Oblong Books, which is in Milliton, as well as in Rhinebeck, New York. My younger daughter goes to Skidmore in Saratoga, and there's a fabulous bookstore there, also small. Um, and uh, we seek out bookstores wherever we are. There's great bookstores in, you know, Toronto and Halifax and That's all great. the towns that we that we visit. Um, it's really in- encouraging. Actually, one day uh, we went to my family and I went to the Strand, and I was standing by the door. Um, just waiting because I wasn't going to buy any more books, which is the reference to six feet of books, which is about the number of feet of books I have sitting on my side table waiting to be read. And and I just thought to myself, as I watched people come in, stream in, and I said, you know, who said bookstores are dead? I mean, it's really wonderful when that people are reading. Absolutely. It's really wonderful. Absolutely. Well, thank you. This has been just phenomenal. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, my bookmark, and other merchandise to come. Let me know if you'd like a bookmark sent to you. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And of course, Carol is my muse, as well as my affiliate manager. Jake continues to find his spot on the team. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. Thanks also to the great Anchor team, now at Spotify, for making it free and easy to create the podcast. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, and in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.